Welcome. You're listening to Activist NYC, the podcast on Family FM, recording inside Canal Street Radio. I am your host, Cindy Trin. Activist NYC is an ongoing documentary photo project about activism and social justice movements in New York City. This podcast is an extension of my Activist NYC project and will include interviews with activists, organizers, and political leaders in our city. My goal is to learn about what motivates activists to do the hard work they dedicate their lives to and discuss the important issues surrounding the people of New York. Stay with us. Today's guest is June, a black trans anarchist and prominent member of NYC Shut It Down, a police and prison abolitionist group that for four years has held weekly demonstrations, each one highlighting a different victim of state violence. The group got its start in 2014 during the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement and survived the often tumultuous conditions for organizers, and since last year have been expanding their program. Shut It Down not only highlights the violence against the black community through traditional protests, but has also expanded what they call survival programs and other more direct actions. They see these programs as the most direct route to the abolition of the car carceral state. Welcome, June. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really, really glad that um, we worked this out and that you could be here because um, this has been a topic that I feel I really want to talk more and expand upon in my activist NYC project. I've been covering Black Lives Matter for a long time now. I actually you know, was there um, in the very beginning during uh, NYC, when NYC shut it down, first kind of started back in 2014. And I came to some of the very early protests and the, and the actions at Grand Central Terminal. and. Um, you know, just just seeing where the movement has come over the years and how much it has expanded and grown and evolved. And, um, you know, I really want to know how you got involved, first of all, in NYC Shut It Down. And, you know, what role do you really play in, in, the, in the group right today? So the story of my involvement is a, a relatively long one. Um, uh, in the past few years, I've been very mobile. Um, kind of bouncing back and forth between cities. Um, you know, the beginning of my, my organizing career, as it were, kind of coincided with, like, the end of high school and, uh, you know, going into college. And so there was a lot of moving for school um, and a lot of, uh, a lot of different uh, organizing scenes and different politics kind of popping up in my life for short periods of time kind of always, always very short moments. Um, you know, for a, a moment I was attending Hiram College in Northeast Ohio and a very, uh, very secular um, sort of student activist scene, um, but also like very liberal and uh, very passive um, as, you know, most liberal arts organizing tends to be. Um, but it was actually after being kicked out of Hiram uh, that uh, I came back home to, to Brooklyn um, with a couple friends from Ohio, and we sort of stumbled upon uh, a, a 
a protest after the the pulse shootings um the, the orlando the pulse orlando shoot. pulse yeah. shootings yeah mm-hmm. and um ended up meeting uh, a bunch of the comrades that are nyc shut it down um that either uh were then or have since become members of nyc shut it down through uh participating in a march and then uh more intimately getting to know them through uh through jail support and through a court support day the the day after um and i think the most uh, attractive thing about shut it down and uh the moment where my politics really shifted and really became aligned uh with uh shut it down's politics and our our current program was that moment and seeing you know uh, uh a large chosen family do something uh as as kind of uh, big and important as show up for someone who's in jail but also something as, as boring as court support. Um, I don't know if you've ever had the displeasure of sitting in 100 Center Street yes, waiting for a I friend have, to get out actually. of bookings. It's, it's, uh, it's usually <laughs> not a fun time. It's not. Um, yeah, it's not. I actually am also a lawyer. Not yeah. a lot of people know that. Um, I'm a lawyer turned photographer. And um, so during Occupy Wall Street, I represented a lot of defendants during that time. And I sat in those yeah. co- all those courts for yep. many hours. I defended some people from Occupy as well, so I'm very familiar with <laughs> with the courts here, and yeah. I know it's it's very it's it's not somewhere that anyone wishes to be. No, not at all. Um, and I think another really important aspect of of just that uh, is that previously I had I had seen arrests take place. I had been uh, part of actions where arrests had happened, uh, but I had never really put it together. My my vision at the time was very much this idea that when arrests happen at protests, they are they are acts of civil disobedience, and they are more or less planned, um, more or less understood. That like you're going to get arrested, you're going to go through bookings, you're going to get charged with, you know, OGA and discon, and you're going to make a, a big public thing about it as a way to draw attention to whatever it is that you're. Uh, protesting Um, but what I saw that evening and what I saw in the courts the next day was not planned arrests it was you know very active and and militant uh, protest and action but it wasn't it wasn't planned and I think that really stuck out to me because I think it's it's very gross to me that idea that there are people out there um, with the privilege that a lot of organizers have um, who actively seek to put themselves in that in that position uh knowing that they're they're in just for a visit you know i think that's i think that's a it just leaves a bad taste in my mouth I'll yeah say that. i i mean i i witnessed especially it was during occupy that really woke my eyes up to um what happens at these protests and it's actually why i started activist nyc in the first place was because i was a legal observer during Occupy Wall Street, and I saw with my own eyes people just being tackled for no reason. Even yeah. I got tackled for no reason. And I, I remember, um, you know, I was, I had my green hat on, all mm-hmm. the legal observers had their green hats, hats on, and I was taking pictures, and I had a police officer um, come up from behind me and just tackle me to the ground. For no reason. All I was doing was just standing there watching and taking pictures. And the officer 
dug his elbow into my spine to the point where I couldn't move, I couldn't breathe, I couldn't like do anything. And I was freaking out, especially because around this time I was uh, just getting barred. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to lose my bar membership. Like I'm going to get arrested and I'm not, I can't be a lawyer. And I was like freaking out about that. Um, I mean, I, I ended up fine. I'm still a lawyer. <laughs> I'm still barred. But it was it was so it was just so like anxiety inducing. And and I saw that. So it happened to so many people. You know, I saw um, women being groped by the police officers and um, I saw blood, just people getting bloodied out yeah. there. And and it sickened me to the point that I've never seen anything like that before. Like I had, uh, you know, I had been involved in protests before Occupy, but this was on another level that I had never witnessed. And and what I hated about how the media portrayed like protesters was, you know, this very negative image of you know pepper spraying the activists and and you know activists being basically pummeled to the ground. And and I know like the media loves this. The, these headlines and they love these images because it gets them the the clicks and stuff. But yeah, I, I I just really wanted to do something that showed you know more of the positive side of the protests and shows people just out there in the streets you know showing up for what they believe in. And I wanted to just show people out there on a regular basis like. The, the kind of actions that the news might not quite cover, right? Yeah. So that, that's actually why I, I, I went to NYC Shut It Down in the beginning when, when it first started happening. They first started for, like, you know, organizing these weekly actions. Um, you know, I was covering it because these are the kind of things that the mainstream media won't cover, right? And... Um, I think that's really important, and that's how I got to do what I do today. I, you know, I created this activist NYC project, and then it just sort of like took a lot of life of its own. And then um, I decided that I wanted to quit law and dedicate my life full time to doing like this work, you know, photography and photojournalism, documentary photography with a social justice, you know, lean to it. Um, so that, that, that really, I mean, it changed my view completely, you know? And I think what, I think just other experiences I've had with the police, it, it also has framed my perspective on, you know, I had a really bad experience with police when I was in high school, I was racially profiled. And so I think those, you know, personal experiences kind of shapes what where I stand today on it and I kind of want to dive into you know your personal history so um you know where did you grow up and and how did you get to where you're at today like wh what led you here so um I grew up in uh in in Brooklyn in uh Fort Greene and I think I think a lot of the credit in terms of how I got here, uh, actually, is due to to my upbringing, um, to my parents and my grandparents. Um, my grandparents were radicals in the '60s and '70s, um, uh, involved with uh, SNCC and SDS and uh, and the Black Panthers. 
um, and you know, and also uh, on the on the artistic side, you know, the beginnings of like some of the World Cafe stuff, um, and uh, that kind of shaped my my mother's upbringing um, in a in a world where it was it was seen as like a very a very valiant and and righteous thing to do to become an artist an activist a teacher um, not necessarily in the most radical sense but in in the base sense because those are things that are like directly beneficial to people and I think that was that was sort of the the ethos that my my grandparents installed into my mother um and i think i think that was installed into me i mean i i was raised uh with my grandmother in the home and uh you know i i remember i i guess i am my my stories from grandma were probably not like like everyone's there was a lot of uh a lot of photos of of uh black radicals many of whom are now in prison or you know um in other in other countries, uh, in fear of like uh, persecution or prosecution, um, here in the states, uh, and um, it it did kind of instill in me at, a, at an early age a need to question authority, you know, a need uh, for um, a, a need for autonomy. You know, I think that was the base level um, that they expected from me was that I would be a person who who made their own decisions um, and uh, did so, you know, despite or in spite of um, what powers might be preventing that, um, even if it was them, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, that that really led the way. Um, I ended up attending a very radical high school, um, an alternative high school uh, in in Fort Greene in Brooklyn. Um, to Brooklyn Free School, um, and they always had uh, a sort of underlying, you know, current uh, or theme of social justice in their mission, uh, but while I was there, made it very explicit that that was going to be, like, part of their program, um, and my first year, you know, my, my freshman year of high school, we took a, a field trip, this shows how young I am, we took a field <laughs> trip to Occupy Wall Street, you know, so I was 13, 14, you know, um, oh, you know, okay. and seeing that for the first time, and it was a dreary, rainy, awful day, and there, you know, we had been, this, it had been going on for about three or four weeks now, and so we had seen pictures, and we had been reading stuff in the papers, um, and we were expecting, like, a couple thousand people, and there were, like, 40 people um, in a cardboard library, and, yeah. uh, you know, uh, a bunch of kids showed up with a a pretty poorly made banner um and i remember just seeing those those sopping wet you know sad anarchists uh, <laughs> i know, remember uh, i remember those images too, yeah, yeah. <laughs> their faces just lit up when uh you know 30 30 high schoolers just showed up yeah, yeah it was really cool um and so you know along with that um as i got older um you know went through the motions, started reading Marx, started, uh, uh, kind of diving into, you know, radical politics, um, you know, in an academic sense. Um, then the Black Lives Matter movement happened, um, you know, still very young, uh, didn't really have the opportunity to organize necessarily in the way that I do now. Um, but, uh, tried to be 
out on the street as often as I can. Um, and actually, I have pretty distinct memories of people in Shut It Down before ever meeting them, years before ever meeting them in some of the uh, early stuff in the, the winter of 2014. Um, and uh, some of the, the actions just after Eric Garner was, was murdered. Um, and I think that, that sort of uh, kind of build up, you know, it, it definitely, you know, my, my high school days ended, you know, with Black Lives Matter, you know, with Black Lives Matter and, you know, just coming up on uh, a presidential election, you know, and now, you know, nearly four years later and it's, it's happening again. We're seeing, you know, a new resurgence in the Black Lives Matter movement to an extent and uh, we're seeing a lot of adaptation to it. We're seeing an acceptance of much more radical, um, uh, much more sidelined uh, ideologies um, come into the forefront. Um, and it's great and it makes me hopeful but it also makes me, you know, just as anxious as I was in 2015, 2016. Definitely. You know? um, the fact that you are young makes it even all the more, I feel, personal and relevant for you because, I mean, Tamir Rice, you know, like Trayvon Martin, mm -hmm. they were kids. They were literally kids. Mm -hmm. and Not much older or younger than me exactly, when they were killed. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean... That fact alone makes it all the more, I could only imagine it would make it all the more real and personal for you because because of the fact that their age was so, is so close to yours that it, you know, it, it's so easy to have, it could easily happen to you, right? And, yeah. and that's, and that is that constant fear and anxiety, I think that, um, black Americans are living with every single day. That fear that it could happen to them at any moment because it happened to children. Yeah. I mean, w what's to stop police from doing it to literally anybody? Yeah. And it's because they have all this power and they have no accountability, right? They have zero Whatsoever. accountability yeah. and they have no consequences to their actions so they're not thinking at all about is this a child could i have been ruined just a, ch a child's life you know and, and that's 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 the most painful part about about it for me you know like the case like of tamir rice and trayvon martin it is so so horrible like it's so horrible that we can treat children like this in america and i think it, it even goes beyond just just our, our children and our communities. Um, I actually lived around the corner from uh, Cadell where uh, Tamir Rice was killed in, in Cleveland um, for, for about a year. Are you from Ohio? I'm not from oh, Ohio. Okay. just lived there, exiled oh, okay. there <laughs> um, for uh, about a year. And, um, you know... All my life, I, I spent here in, in New York under uh, a very real and visible occupation of the NYPD. You know, they are a standing army, um, and they make that known. Um, and I think, you know, especially if you're in a neighborhood of color, you can see it. But pretty much anywhere you can see it here in New York. Um, but there was, there was something so sinister 
about living in Cadell and watching police operate in that neighborhood, um, a neighborhood that had just, you know, months before I moved in, you know, had been revolting, you know, had been, you know, absolutely up in arms, was uh, very, very publicly and very angrily mourning the death of their son. Um, this whole this whole community was, um, and the the police in that neighborhood still uh i mean just the 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 uh way they would they would drive around the way they would patrol that neighborhood uh felt like you know watching uh, a conquering nation that yeah. had just that had just won that had just you know claimed their territory um and you know after those those months of of protests those months of anguish for the city you know the fact that the police still still act with such power with with almost no shame or no no guilt whatsoever um for what they've done for the organization that they still are a part of um you know their uh their their union union leader uh Steve Loomis you know going out and calling Tamir Rice a thug um and basically implying that he deserved to be killed um and you know these these white cops you know these these like heavily armed most of the time you know white cops just driving around you know slowly around an elementary school around a middle school you know um just sort of staking their claim to this territory um it was it was it was a sinister thing to witness um and it, it hasn't ended, you know. It's not like I'm gone and, you know, it, it's over. No, it's it's still happening. Um, and I think I think that in and of itself is a form of, like, psychological warfare against the people of that community uh, as a way of saying, well, you can protest all you want. We're still going to be here. We're still going to do what we do, which is murder your children, you know, which is rape and pillage throughout this community you know we're going to do what we came here to do what we were built to do and uh you know your marches your marches can't do anything about that um and you know since then since the the murder of Tamir Rice you know there has not been a lot of militant action in Cleveland um and I think uh that's not for lack of trying for a lot of amazing organizing out there um there, there are some people out there doing really great work, but you know, there is also, there is also that tremendous force playing against them. Do you feel disheartened by that at all? I mean, like, how do we, how do we go up against something so big? Like, the, they're Goliath, right? Like, how, how do you feel that um, organizers and activists can, can come up against something like that? So that's actually a, a good segue to talk about some of uh, Shut It Down survival programs. Um, you know, it's it's been said uh, a number of times and in numerous ways that uh, a good revolution and a good revolutionary subverts more than they destroy, right? Um, if we were to face, you know, not just the NYPD, but, you know, the U.S. military, you know, like capitalism, the carceral state, you know, as 
as the people we are. You know, it's a it's a mosquito on a lion. You know, um, and we're doing the marches we do are are you know just just faint blips on their radar. Um, and I think that that has been proven. You know, in a number of you know different different eras um, in a number of different movements, we've we've seen that this is not you know this is not uh, a war we're going to win on equal planes. You know, this is not something we can go up and say, all right, at a certain point we will have built the movement up to a point where we can just charge at them and you know take back what's ours. It it doesn't work like that. I think if we want to abolish prisons, if we want to abolish the police, really see a change in our communities, what we first need to do is provide for all of those things, all of those necessary things like food and shelter um, and you know more nuanced and more complicated things like uh, transportation and um, making, making things like food and shelter accessible um, and do the things that the state says they will do um, often fails to do regardless um, before we can ever think about you know you know attacking or uh, really directly conflicting with with the state head-on I think that would be irresponsible to do it would put a lot of lives in danger um, it would ruin a lot of amazing more uh, subtle organizing projects I think um, and that's not to discourage anyone that's not to say anyone's uh, politics are invalid that's not to sound like a pacifist um, and say that you know, you're incorrect for believing in the use of force um, when your oppressor is using it so so freely. But that is to say that there is a time and a place and uh, there is there is an effectiveness to it. Um, and I think what we have we have seen throughout history is the most effective way to combat the state, to combat capitalism is to subvert it. You know, the Panthers proved that to us. Um, you know, and and the state even ended up adopting some of their programs. WIC is a is a Panther program. You know, and um, that existed. You know, not as a as a, a militant exercise, but as you know, a, a genuine solution to a problem. You know, and it was a radical grassroots organization that put it together. And I think that's what shut it down can do. I think that's what we're going to do. I know that's what we're going to do um, in the future and what we're starting to do now. Um, and it, it starts small. You know, the Panthers were not, you know, they weren't just a four-year-old group when WIC started. They had been going um, and they had uh, built a national movement at that point. So um, I think a lot of work still needs to be done, but that's the direction we need to be going as organizers as a whole, I think. I have a question a little, like, kind of related to that. So, um, you know, talking about Black Panthers and how they grew into this national movement and looking at the Black Lives Matter movement, um, seeing all the different kind of uh, organizations that have kind of, like, spouted out from the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, what, what put what makes NYC shut it down different? What sets you apart from, let's say, you know, Justice League NYC or like, like some other uh, Black Lives Matter? Well, there's a know, lot groups. that uh, there's a lot that sets us apart from Justice League. I'll say that much. Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> um, you know, for for one thing, we do stuff. But um, 
you know, Ooh. yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm not holding back. Um, no, uh, there's, there's something that has been said a lot about the Black Lives Matter movement, um, because the comparison, you know, is, is really easy to make, you know, comparing, uh, you know, Occupy and BLM and Standing Rock, um, to those movements of the seventies, you know, to the, the anti-war movement and to, you know, like groups like, uh, AIM and, uh, and the Panthers. And I think there are valid comparisons there, but, you know, a point that keeps getting made when those comparisons are, are brought up is that, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement is kind of inherently cellular. You know, we're not a cohesive movement. Um, and the, the struggle for black liberation even more so, you know, the struggle for abolition even more so, there is no unified voice um, that, you know, like the Panthers had a, a national charter, you know, they had, you know, a, a definitive party program. They were a party, they were a vanguard, but um, Shut It Down isn't trying to be that. Um, there are organizations out there that are trying to be that. Wish them the best of luck. Um, I don't think it's gonna work. <laughs> but uh why don't why don't you think it'll work i think we have uh we have seen you know that i mean a any any engagement in you know an electoral process is is pretty useless um and and futile um and this idea that uh any one organization any one group of people uh that seeks to create change um kind of unilaterally is very easily uh, swept away and replaced with something uh, a lot more dogmatic um, and you know very easily you know we're, we're combating fascism here you know to to advocate for a single party leadership just seems like a really easy way to slip into that dynamic um, and I think that's something a lot of anarchists uh, reconcile with but even broader than that I think the radical community as a whole you know has begun to understand that we're no longer organizing in a way where we want to get everyone under one party line. We want people to have their own ideas, to organize their own communities the way they see fit. Um, and I think a lot of what Shut Down does is rather than just trying to provide resources, we provide uh, the tools for communities to provide the resources for themselves um, and try and set up programs that will, you know, foster things like community food serves and, you know, community medical centers um, happening. And then, you know, at some point taking a step back and letting people who live in a given community do it themselves. Um, because, you know, as, as organizers, we can't be everywhere. Um, if we try to be everywhere, we will be, you know, susceptible to the state, to capital, um, to our own infighting. Um, and, if we even did manage to be everywhere, you know, who's to say that we have the consent of the communities that we are, are trying to change? Um, I think, you know, I mean, Justice League's a great example. They don't always have that consent. You know, they operate uh, pretty frequently in a way that, uh, you know, we've seen, we've seen family members of police uh, violence and we've seen uh, communities just railing after, after these attacks uh, get really upset when organizers who organize for that sake, you know, for this idea of like building, building their movement, 
not just the movement, but their movement, um, and building their name, you know, um, it's, it, it does leave a bad taste in your mouth. And I think especially, um, an example of that that comes to mind was the, uh, the murder of, uh, Saeed Vassal, um, and there was a, a big march in, uh, in Crown Heights and in uh, East Flatbush. And um, a lot of people showed up and a lot of different organizers and uh, organizations showed up. But also, you know, the whole hood showed, like, showed up. You know, you had like 2,000 people out there, you know, just from the neighborhood. Um, and personally, I hadn't seen anything like that in, in years. I hadn't seen anything like that since like 2016. Um, uh, and I was. You didn't get to go to like some of like the millions march, did you? I I did get to see some of the, okay, the millions yeah. marches, yeah. Um, and uh, uh, more like uh, really way back when, like the the people's climate march kind of stuff. Um, that kind of those kinds of actions. Um, I mean, we have a, a a line in Shut It Down that's you know if your if your protest has a permit, it's not a protest; it's a parade. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> if you got the if you got the cops permission to say. If you got say, barriers yeah. up, then it's not really yeah. a protest. More exactly. of a yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a that's a big part of that. But um, this was this was you know on the fly organized. There wasn't a permit. There wasn't anything. There was uh, barely the resources you know to keep the the sound system around long enough for everyone to speak. Um, but it worked. Um, but there definitely were people from the community that were like, who are these, you know, largely white, you know, largely middle class, you know, like yuppie types to come into our neighborhood and A, tell us what's good and like teach us some chance and, you know, you know, march in the front of our marches and act like this is their thing. Um, you know, who are these people to come in and do that? Um, and, you know, I think, you know, Shut It Down isn't immune to that either. You know, we are we are a group of organizers from all over the city. You know, we often find ourselves in places that we don't necessarily immediately belong, but I think that's part of the goal of Shut It Down is to, like, make the connection with the community first. And if we don't have that, to not assume a prominent role you know. I, I totally agree with that. And I think it's important to distinguish that um, we need white allies. We need white people to show up. Accomplices. Because we need white yeah. accomplices. <laughs> uh, yeah, accomplices. I mean, we need white people to show up, right? Yeah. But they need to also um, step back and mm -hmm. realize that there are people of color that have been fighting this fight for a really long time. And... Um, you know, they should, they should give that space to yeah. those people and, and, you know, for once they need, they need it more than, than the yeah. white people do. Right. Um, so I, I definitely feel your, your sentiment on that. And, but I, but I want to, I want, you know, I want better people to come out. I want, I, I, I think it's, I think it is something to be said when you see a, a huge group of people out in the streets yeah. and um you know it 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 definitely perks people's attention right yeah. and and i think that's that's how we get our message across and that's like the power of protest that's why it's in our constitution it's why we have this right 
to protest and to um, you know take to the streets and and express our our opinions and express um, you know what we want change and and we're allowed to criticize the government because we have this right not a lot of other countries have that right you know so um, when I see when I see you know police trying to suppress that right I mean how are we gonna say that we're any better than China who censors all their material or, or they and they definitely suppress like if there was ever a protest happening there they would squash that in a second right and or so Putin. how are we who are we to act like we're better when our police are doing the same thing mm-hmm. right and and that to me is the is is the is the root of the problem uh, with our militarized police state and the power that they have it's it's too much and i i i wonder like how how can we change that what can we do about that i think we just got to get rid of it <laughs> um just get rid of it completely absolutely and yeah you're gone. talking about like more community-based programming and services mm-hmm. so so what really what nyc shut it down if i'm if i'm understanding correctly is that um you stand for getting rid of you know this militarized police state and supplementing it with community-based programming and services is, is that right more or less yeah mm-hmm. um i think the basis for for our uh our politic right now is that uh we we understand the the history of police not just here in the united states but everywhere right the history of police has always been as a a tool for oppression um but it is a tool you know so ingrained in the state itself you know there there really is no no formal state without a military um and at a certain point any state will grow to the point where that military needs to you know, occupy itself, and that is what a police force is, right? Um, it needs to, it is a, a military that, you know, occupies, you know, a domestic space um, as opposed to a foreign space, right? Um, and the police in the United States have such a, a entangled and direct connection to, uh, like, slave catchers and slave patrols, Um and understanding that, like, these instances, these, like, seemingly, like, momentary instances of, of racism are not, they're not momentary. You know, we have a line, that this is not an isolated incident. It's not. You know, this is a history of racism that has been, you know, not ingrained in police, but is police, right? Like, police were built as a racist force. And... If we want to build a world without racism, we have to build a world without police. And modern police function, you know, uh, with prisons in tandem. And so we have to build, along with that, a world without prisons. I have to pose then the the hypothetical, you know, question, um, playing a little bit of devil's advocate. How How can we even achieve that? I mean... Is it really possible to abolish the entire police? Is it possible to abolish all prisons? What about criminals? What do we do about criminals then? Well, I mean, I'm a criminal. 
um, <laughs> and and proudly so. Um, but I I think I, I think I understand what you mean. Um, you know how do we how do we handle people in our communities? You know in our spaces who are violent towards us, um, who are who right. are doing destructive things uh, towards each other, and you know I I will uh, I will just say that. We, we have handled those things for for centuries for millennia before the advent of police police are a, a modern a modern thing uh, prisons are a modern thing um, and people have got on and survived humanity survived um, and and prospered you know without those things um, and I think the key there was we we did organize in smaller communities I think um, you know part of Part of the anarchist idea is that, you know, a, a nation of 300 million people just wasn't ever going to get along. You know, we weren't ever going to find one cohesive line. I mean, that's one of the reasons this idea of a, a, a single party, of a vanguard, is, is so flawed. I mean, like, how could you get 300 million people to sign on to, you know, uh, a, single, a single political idea? Um, you know, be it, you know, a, a specific communist party's idea or be it the you know general idea of representative democracy you know there's always going to be people who disagree um and so the way we handle disagreement the way we handle conflict should be based on much smaller uh much more intimate settings um i think we can handle you know things like sexual assault things like murder even you know we could handle those kinds of uh, acts of violence you know much more efficiently uh, much more realistically um, and without furthering you know the cycle of violence without harming survivors which I I mean I have I have seen you know uh, a lot of great things come out of the Me Too movement but I think one of the more negative things that's come out is this this belief that the the carceral system is somehow going to fix this it's not and you know if there's any truism we know about prison is that it's a hotbed for sexual assault it's a hotbed for you know like uh, a state to further the mentality of misogyny and and rape culture and you know that's that's not preventing someone from doing harm that's just removing them and putting them in a place where they can do harm to people who supposedly deserve it. You know, you put a, a a person who's you know attacked people in another context in that situation. You know, they're not going to stop attacking people. You know, they're going to do so in your confines, and they're going to attack people that you say either can handle it or deserve to be attacked. Um, and that's that is the logic of prisons. It's like if we put all the bad people together, they'll just hurt each other instead. But you know, so frequently we see, you know, um, good, wonderful, innocent people, you know, end up in jail cells for the rest of their lives and end up experiencing horrible things. Um, and there's, there's no excuse for that. And a lot um, of times it's, it's racially, you it's, know, it's, bi- it's, yeah, bias. it's, it's almost always, you almost know, based always, on a, a racial right? bias or, I mean, or a class can, bias. We can ta- we can have an entire whole episode of the, about the prison industrial complex yeah. and how prisons were basically created as another form of slavery, mm-hmm. right? I mean, 
I mean, that's why we throw so many black and brown people in our prisons, because once slavery was uh, abolished in this country, they had to just repackage it. Mm -hmm. And it's just, and it's prisons. That's prisons, prisons, yeah. It's just repackaged slavery. Yeah. (laughs) And that that was the advent of modern police as well. Like, we saw, you know, the slave patrols, um... Uh, and their connection to, you know, what was once, you know, an elected sheriff and deputy, you know, or elected or, you know, uh, semi-collectively appointed uh, by, like, a small town or county, you know, we saw those grow into statewide patrol forces, you know, to enforce Jim Crow laws, to, you know, keep people in, uh, you know, in the carceral state, you know, keep people connected to that. Um as well as, you know, an increase on the financial aspect of that, you know, keeping people in poverty, keeping people in debt, you know, and thus, you know, sacrificing, um, or not sacrificing, just uh, eliminating their their ability, uh, their mobility, really, um, their ability to escape uh, the state is really what it is. So um, at this time, uh, I actually want to cut to something special. Uh, So during the recording of this episode of the podcast, it just so happens that NYC Shut It Down is uh, planning an action. Um, And so I went out there and uh, got some audio and wanted to ask other people from the group, you know, what their thoughts are and and why they why they show up um, to these actions every week. So uh, here's a little special um, audio from NYC Shut It Down. Check it out. Um, I'm Sage. Um, I'm one of the organizers with NYC Shut It Down. Um, and basically, we're we're here today because of the non-indictment of Stefan Clark's murders. Um, and that happens all too often. Cops not having any consequences for continuing genocide of black people. And how did you get involved with NYC Shut It Down? Honestly, three years ago, I accidentally ran into them on my way home from the library, met some really awesome people, and um, well, I ran into one of their protests, and I just joined it from the street. And um, I just never stopped going since. I just kept on going to People's Monday after that. We are here tonight. We are here tonight. Because yet again. Because yet again. Their so-called. Their so-called. Judicial system. Judicial system. Has failed us. Has failed us. With yet another. With yet another. Non-indictment. Non-indictment. Of racists. Of racists. Fascists. Fascists. Murdering pigs. Thank you. Thank you. 
Hi, my name is Sharon. I am here because I'm a mother of two boys. I am here in solidarity as an East Asian American woman for my black brothers and sisters. We have to focus our energy on anti-black racism and anti-black violence because until black people are free, none of us are free. So June, uh, where can we see more information and hear more about NYC Shut It Down? Where can people find out about your weekly actions and you know all your social media handles? So uh, right now, the easiest way to to find us is uh, through our Facebook page. It's just NYC Shut It Down um, on Facebook. Um, we're kind of in the process of uh, you know rebuilding our internet presence, um, you know, kind of revamping our Instagram and Twitter, and uh, building a brand new website that's going to have um, not only you know updates on our weekly actions and events that we're doing, um, and you know ways to plug in, um, as well as ways to support us through like donations. Um, uh, it's also going to have uh, a comprehensive and compiled like effectively compiled list of all of the cases we've ever done all of the victims of police murder uh, that we've ever presented uh, through our uh, our weekly people's Mondays um, as we call them and it's gonna have you know the write-up uh, the the facts of the case it's gonna have links to news articles about that case uh, you know portraits and, and posters of the victim um, potentially even you know small words from uh, from family and community members you know when available um, and I think we're, we're really excited to launch that project and to make that uh, that part of the the storytelling aspect of shut it down go a little bit further and uh, save a little bit you know um, make it a little bit more timeless I'm really excited to see what NYC shut it down uh, does next and I'll continue to follow and, and, and show up and be there when I can. And I want to thank you so much for being here with me today. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. And thank you, everyone, for joining us at Activist NYC, the podcast. Your support is much appreciated. Activist NYC, the podcast, is presented in partnership with Listening Party, the creators of Family FM. Follow the crew on Instagram at Listening Party Presents and at Canal Street Market. Be sure to follow Activist NYC on Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr at Activist NYC. Tune in next time.